The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you want to go back to a world in which the president doesn't have a lot of unilateral power to take the country to war, that Congress holds that power, well, then you're kind of peeling back this layer that's been laid over the delegation issue. I'm Matt Gluck, Research Fellow at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 22nd, 2024. There is much debate among academics and policy experts over the power the Constitution affords to the President and Congress to initiate military conflicts. But as Michael Ramsey and Matthew Waxman, law professors at the University of San Diego and Columbia, respectively, point out in a recent Law Review article, this focus misses the mark. In fact, the most salient constitutional war powers question in our current era dominated by authorizations for the use of military force is not whether the president has the unilateral authority to start large-scale conflicts. Rather, it is the scope of Congress's authority to delegate its war initiation power to the president. This question is particularly timely, as the Supreme Court appears growingly skeptical of significant delegations of congressional power to the executive branch. I spoke with Waxman and Ramsey about their article. We discussed their findings about the history of war power delegations from the founding era to the present, what these findings might mean if Congress takes a more assertive role in the war powers context, and why these constitutional questions matter if courts are likely to be hesitant to rule on war powers delegation questions. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 22nd, Waxman and Ramsey on Delegating War Power. Matt, to begin, what drew you to this project and and which questions did you set out to answer? Thanks, Matt. So war powers reform is a hotly debated topic these days, and so are the constitutional limits of legislative delegation. So Mike and I were curious about how those two topics fit together, right? Since World War II, Congress doesn't formally declare war anymore, but instead, uh, in the case of all major U.S. ground wars since Korea, uh, Congress sometimes enacts an AUMF, an authorization for the use of military force. So Mike and I were thinking, what can we learn by considering force resolutions not just as legislative authorizations, but as legislative delegations, that is, uh, resolutions delegating vast policy discretion to the president 
as to whether and when to use force or go to war, or perhaps not to use any force at all. And I should make clear that by by war powers here, we're talking only about the power to use military force or initiate military conflict. We're not talking about the separate, very interesting constitutional issues of how war is conducted. We're talking here about going to war. And and today, you know, even most critics of presidential unilateralism see delegation of war power as a constitutionally satisfactory way for Congress to exercise its Article I powers. It's it's one that to many critics is fully restorative of Congress's prerogatives to control whether uh, we go to war or not. Um, and so among other issues, we were, we were interested in when and how did this practice become so well accepted. And Matt, why did you think it was important to focus on war initiation in particular? As you mentioned, uh, war powers delegation is broader than war initiation. So what drew you to war initiation? Yeah, we were drawn to it because it's such a contentious issue. You know, 230 plus years into American history, the the issue of uh, Congress's exclusive power to take the nation to war versus uh, the president's power to do so remains hotly, hotly contested. And uh, and today there's an ongoing debate in academia and in Congress about whether whether that issue needs to be reformed, whether Congress needs to reassert uh, what are often regarded as its uh, original war power. Matt, before we get into the specifics, broadly, what did you find in your examination of this question? And why do those findings matter to us today? Sure. So you know, we begin by noting that there are really two intuitions that we found about whether Congress's war power is delegable. There's one very common one, which is that, of course, it's delegable, and that's because foreign affairs powers are are, are broadly delegable. See U.S. v. Curtis Wright. And so the power to go to war is exceptionally delegable. There's another intuition that takes the view that there are special grave and particular stakes and risks associated with war. And for that reason, Congress's war power is exceptionally, maybe even uniquely non-delegable. And so one thing we were surprised to learn early on is that this second view, that Congress's war power is non-delegable, actually has quite a long and persistent pedigree throughout American history. Um, but overall, we found that the historical record really doesn't support alone either of those two intuitions. Uh, it's really in the, we find in the mid 20th century, especially in the early Cold War, that the modern practice of congressional delegation of its war power really comes into being and really becomes well accepted. So why should we care about that? First, let me just say what we're not doing is making a strong uh, originalist doctrinal argument. We're not saying, uh, we're, we're not taking a position that on originalism grounds alone, war power is non-delegable. There are plenty of other reasons to think that it is delegable. I personally think those arguments 
are quite strong. Uh, that for functional reasons and for reasons of recent historical practice, congressional delegation of its war power is is constitutionally permissible. It's uh, I think it's a, a quite adaptive and pragmatic approach to the way Congress exercises its is, is its war power. But but here are th- three reasons why we think this constitutional history is important. Uh, one. A defining feature of American constitutional war powers uh, is the extent to which, even centuries after the founding, many basic legal questions remained hotly contested, and partisans in strategic debates over the use of military force tend to wield constitutional arguments for political effect. So I, I predict that in the near future, in an era when we hear loud voices on the right and the left calling for a retrenchment of U.S. military commitments abroad, I think these kinds of non-delegation arguments are going to make a bit of a comeback in in debates about war powers. Uh, second, and here again, I'm invoking the Curtis Wright case, it's often argued that broad delegation is especially permissible when it comes to foreign affairs. And our findings about the the, the history of, of, of war power delegation, I think, calls into question whether foreign affairs is really a, a coherent category. Um, certainly, if you're looking at historical practice, I don't think it makes sense to look at the history of foreign affairs delegation is one single coherent category. I think you have to look at specific foreign affairs powers, and that's why we wanted to examine specifically the war power. And then third and finally, the history of constitutional objections to war power delegation is relevant to contemporary debates about war powers reform. You know, reformists often pitch their calls for Congress playing a stronger role here as restoring or reclaiming Congress's original constitutional role in in war initiation. But we find that early and recurring congressional debates about how Congress was permitted to exercise its war power were at least as important as debates about whether or not Congress's power was exclusive. And, and, and this means that for, for those reformists, war powers reformists who say, we need to return to the original meaning, to the original allocation of powers, we think that, uh, those reformists, if that's their argument, need to at least wrestle with this delegation issue that's lurking beneath the question of which branch gets to decide whether we go to war. Thank you for laying that out. That's very helpful. Mike, your historical chronology starts at the founding. And although the founding era record on war power delegation is relatively sparse, you write that delegates to the Philadelphia Convention discussed war powers twice in a substantive way. Could you describe those discussions? Sure. The first one was right at the beginning of the convention when they proposed the Virginia Plan. One thing that the Virginia plan did was it said that the uh, the president, the executive, uh, would have the executive powers of the Continental Congress. And this was met with objection from uh, a number of leading delegates who said that that could be read to give war power uh, to the president. And they thought that war power was not 
properly something that was lodged in the president. So they objected to that. Um, that clause was struck from uh, from the convention draft. Uh, and then the whole idea of what they were going to do about presidential power was was put off and eventually put over to the uh, really spectacularly misnamed Committee of Detail, uh, which was really the committee that that's fleshed out the, the president's power. When the Committee of Detail report came back much later in the convention, it gave Congress the power to, quote, make war. Uh, and then there's a, a famous exchange on the, uh, on the convention floor where uh, Madison moves to change that to declare war, to give us the language that we currently have, and the, and the, the convention adopts that. And, and in the course of that, several people say that uh, the president ought to not to have the power uh, to take the nation to war. And, and that's, that's all that is said at the convention. It seems to me anyway that uh, that, that sets the, uh, a significant amount of war initiation power, of exclusive war initiation power, uh, to the president. The exact uh, contours are debated, and, and we don't take that up in the paper, but that seems to be what they were doing with that assignment of power to Congress. But they don't go at all into the question uh, of how Congress was going to exercise that war initiation power. Perhaps they thought that it was it would be only done uh, through direct declarations of war, um, but perhaps they thought that Congress uh, could delegate that power back. They really don't take up the question uh, of delegation at all. So is this is this historical record sufficiently robust to draw any meaningful conclusions about original meaning, or is it insufficient? Well. In in the paper, as as Matt said, we're not trying to make a, a an argument about what the original meaning is, and probably a definitive statement about the original meaning would require uh, getting into the broader debates about what the original meaning of delegation and non-delegation of legislative powers generally might be, and that's a point that's been debated extensively in recent times and and earlier, but there's been a sort of upsurge of it in recent times uh, with originalist accounts on both sides. And we really stay out of that. Uh, all all we're, we're asking is whether there's anything in the convention that seems to bear on the question of, of war powers delegation specifically. And we, we think expressly, we say there really isn't anything uh, that you, you can draw on and any conclusions you could draw from the express things were said in the convention. And in, in the, uh, I guess I would carry it forward into the ratification debates as well to sort of make that all part of the same picture. What we do think there is a, a one could see a suggestion, an implication uh, that might cut against at least very broad delegations, because you have a number of people saying that a number of framers and leading uh, voices in the ratification debate saying uh, that one of the attributes of the Constitution is that it does give war initiation power to Congress. And so, for example, James Wilson said at the, the, the Pennsylvania Convention that it would something to the effect of it would not be within the power of a single man to take us to war. And he's referring uh, to the declare war clause and the, the setting that uh, power to Congress. I think you could read an implication of that is that he would be sort of surprised if Congress then turned around and delegated all of its war power straight back to the president. So in fact, it turned out it was within the power uh, of a single person to take us to war. But again, they don't address the delegation question directly. And I think uh, it would it would take some work to get a uh, a crisp originalist argument out of that, either for or against delegation. And we don't try to make that. Uh, we just, again, as Matt said, our, our account is more descriptive. 
and just sort of saying, well, this is what happened and, and make of it what you will. Mike, you distinguish uh, late 18th century and early 19th century war authorizations from modern ones on the basis that the early authorizations did not delegate war initiation authority while the modern ones do. So could you describe some of those early authorizations and why does the fact that they did not delegate war initiation authority undermine their value as precedent for understanding modern authorizations? Sure. Uh, maybe, I think I should maybe clarify to begin is I, I don't think we say anything as definitive as there were no war powers delegations at all in the early period, but there just there weren't that many. And each of the ones uh, that we describe in the paper and we go through in one substantial part of the paper, we, we talk about sort of try, we try to be systematic and talk about every delegation of everything that could be plausibly considered a, a delegation of war power in the uh, late 18th and uh, 19th century. We try to go through each one and see if it uh, seems like it's a, it's a good precedent for modern practice. And some of them we think have uh, at least some commonality with, with modern practice and, and some don't. But what I think is most striking uh, about what we found, really not what I expected to find when I started going into this, is that the practice is really very thin. There, there are relatively few incidents, uh, only really a handful uh, of incidents through that whole period uh, in which there's some kind of a uh, arguable war powers delegation. And they tend to be very caught up in the specifics of particular episodes and, and are not, in that sense, sort of comparable to the broader authorizations that you see today. So you, you discuss in the article two 1798 statutes authorizing the president to attack French ships, which seem to me like delegations that allow for the initiation of the use of force similar to those that we have today. But are you do you argue that those are not solid precedents for modern authorizations, primarily because of the specificity of those authorizations? It's, it's not just the specificity of those authorizations. It, it's also the surrounding circumstances, which were that the French attacked our shipping first. Uh, is that this is the the, the quasi war of the of the in 1798. The the French attacked our shipping first. The, the Congress's first response was to authorize the president to use the navy to defend our shipping. I, I don't see that as a particularly meaningful delegation. I think quite arguably the president had that authority in any event, but it was uh, authorizing, at most authorizing a, a response to an attack against us. And then the second and somewhat more broad delegation, uh, which came sort of later in, in the year, allowed the president to not just take a defensive position, but also use the Navy uh, and U.S. privateers to attack French shipping and French uh, Navy ships on the high seas. So that is a somewhat more meaningful delegation, uh, but it still comes in the context of an ongoing conflict. And in some respects, you could see it as limiting in the sense that it allows the president to attack French ships, but does not authorize the president to, for example, attack uh, French land installations. So it's, it is both narrow and coming in the context of uh, what's already an ongoing conflict. So I think 
based on those circumstances, really to not like what you see in, in some of the, the modern uh, authorizations that we'll talk about later. The, the other thing that I think is striking about the, um, the quasi-war authorizations, uh, which are often used by people who, who say that uh, war powers delegation has a long pedigree, is that they, they were really they're quite unusual that there weren't any uses of force by the president pursuant to delegations after the quasi-war until all the way up into the 20th century. And I think that's something that is, I, I had not really focused on that point going into the paper. And as I started looking for, uh, as, as, as we started looking through the, the, the history of it, it, we were surprised to find that the, the uses of force after the quasi-war were, were either pursuant to express statements by Congress that there was a war in progress, or they were presidential unilateralism. You know, in addition to the kinds of textual analysis and kind of context analysis that Mike was just talking about, we also found that there was a quite an active debate, often within Congress, about the constitutional propriety of delegating war powers uh, or, or Congress's war power, that this was this was a serious argument. It was often not the only argument or the decisive one, and it was often a kind of a minority view, but it was a serious minority view that the war power was uniquely non-delegable. And we see that 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 voice, that argument, kind of echoing throughout American history. That's absolutely right, and and quite interesting. I think there were several incidents that we we think some of the most interesting part of this paper. There were several incidents which are really lost to to modern knowledge, at least modern common knowledge, uh, where Congress did authorize some sort of use of force, but then the president didn't actually end up using the force. So we've, we've sort of forgotten about these incidents, but these are maybe the most interesting ones because, as Matt said, in the context of debating uh, whether to give the president these authorizations, there was commonly an argument uh, from some people, not, not broad-based, but from some people in Congress, that, uh, that this was delegating war power, which was impermissible. And then typically the response to that was not, oh, War power is delegable, so don't worry. In contrast, the the, uh, the argument was typically, well, this is not really delegating the power to declare war. This is something less than war. It's a use of hostilities less than war, and so it's okay. Just following up on that, could you explain why it matters so much that when the president decided to use force based on the delegation or not? It seems to me that the more important precedent would be whether Congress delegated the authority or not. And then whether the president decided to use force wouldn't seem to, to set such a precedent just for the congressional delegation. But could you explain why, why maybe I'm wrong? I, I don't think you're wrong about that. I, I do actually think that the situation in which Congress authorized a use of force, but then the president decided not to use force. I, I, I think we think those are important and, and that's why we spend a good bit of time talking about them. What I think is significant about them is, first off, there aren't very many. Secondly, they tend to come in fairly specific circumstances. They're not broad-based authorizations of the use of force. And third, as, as I just mentioned, 
typically the uh, the argument in favor of the president to the extent that there's an objection on delegation of war powers grounds the the argument the counter argument is that well this is not really akin to delegating the power to declare war um, because this is a use of force that's lesser than a full-scale war quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, let's fast forward to the 20th century. One case, and it's it's probably the most important case on this issue that you've mentioned, Matt, uh, is Curtis Wright. It's probably the most central Supreme Court decision we have on war power delegation. And I want to I want to talk about the importance of, of the case for war power delegation. But before we do that, could you just briefly describe, Matt, what happened in Curtis Wright and its general relevance for your article? Yeah. So Curtis Wright is seen today as sort of the seminal case for the proposition that legislative delegation of policymaking to the president is especially appropriate, or those sort of non-delegation principles are more loosely applied when we're talking about foreign affairs rather than domestic affairs. And Curtis Wright was not really was not at all about war powers. It, 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 it had to do with a, a conflict going on in, in South America. And basically, Congress passes a resolution saying that if the president deems it helpful to resolving this ongoing conflict in South America, then the president can proclaim a, an arms embargo. So it was basically delegating to the president uh, the decision-making about whether the U.S. policy was going to be arms embargo or not. And Justice Sutherland produces, I think, a pretty pretty incoherent opinion uh, that tries to explain why in the foreign affairs realm, broad delegations of policymaking to the president is especially appropriate or or especially permissible as a as a constitutional matter and although you know one one could interpret that case to apply very narrowly to certain kinds of of, of delegations it's been interpreted very very broadly in part because justice sutherland uses very very sweeping language in that opinion uh, it's been interpreted as basically a broad statement, very wide statement, applicable to all foreign affairs delegations. And 
one of our points is that Congress's war power is often lumped into that foreign affairs category. There's good reasons for that, right? What could be more foreign affairs-ish than whether or not the United States goes to war? And we want to argue that, that actually that kind of reasoning is a bit more complicated if you take history seriously, because there's a very, very long, deep history in which Congress's war power was treated as a special, even unique power that didn't that 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 ought not be treated just like any other foreign affairs power. So, what are the other foreign affairs powers that you would say fall into a separate category from Congress's war powers? Yeah, I'd say the biggest one is trade. Right, Congress has the power in Article One to regulate. Uh, foreign trade, foreign commerce. And there, there are, I think there is quite a lot of early American history uh, in which Congress delegates very broad policymaking discretion to the president to b- basically how to implement trade policy within some, some very, very broad legislative guidance. I think another category of powers where you see broad delegation is powers where the president already has substantial independent power. And so, for example, in in war, we were talking about war initiation, but if you talk about war fighting power, it, it was very common in the when Congress declared war or recognized the state of war, that Congress would then say after that, and the president is authorized to use the armed forces as he thinks appropriate to you know, pursue the war. Uh, and so you see that kind of language in, in the War of 1812, in the, uh, when Congress recognizes the state of war with uh, the North African states, uh, Tripoli and, and Algeria, when Congress recognizes the state of war with Mexico, and then the Spanish-American War, you, you have the same thing where the president is, 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 has, gets a very broad authorization in terms of the war fighting, but that's something the president already has considerable power over through the commander-in-chief clause. So I think that's that's another example of where you have uh, already a lot of presidential power independently, then Congress just delegates the, very broadly in contrast to what it often did with the uh, with war initiation. And Matt, just to make sure I understand, so when you say that some of the early history cuts against lumping Congress's war power into uh, the foreign affairs bucket that Justice Sutherland outlines, you mean the history that um, that you and Mike detail in your article, right? Yeah, that's right. And and in particular, this, like I said, uh, a sort of persistent argument that there's something special about war power that makes it particularly non-delegable. Again, that's not that's not always the winning argument in early American history, but it certainly is a very persistent one. And that at least complicates this idea that, hey, you know, all along it's sort of been understood that foreign affairs is this big category. Lots of things uh, fall into it, issues of war, issues of trade, and they all ought to be treated basically the same when it comes to uh, the permissibility of delegating them. That makes sense. 
Matt, you describe in the article a post-World War II shift on views regarding executive war power and how that shift set the stage for modern for modern war initiation authorizations. Could you describe that change in thinking and how it precipitated uh, contemporary authorizations? Yeah, so we really locate the early Cold War as a, a key period for our story or, or sort of the watershed moment at which delegation of war power becomes a well-accepted practice. We think the most important examples of that uh, occur in the Eisenhower administration. The Eisenhower administration isn't, uh, it's often sort of skipped over in the history of war power uh, because the Korean War looms very large and the Vietnam War looms very large. But Eisenhower didn't wage any, any big wars, and at least if we sort of put aside covert ones. And so the Eisenhower administration often gets kind of skipped over in the in the standard story of war powers. But but we think it's especially important. Um, it's really where this modern practice of congressional delegation, broad delegation of war power kind of comes into accepted practice. But it's also a period when a lot of lawyers, a lot of executive branch lawyers, a lot of members of Congress regarded the president's power to use force as very broad. Uh, the president uh, was was thought to, or the president exercised a lot of unilateral power to use force. And so controversies over that latter issue, the president's unilateral power to use force, tended to overshadow concerns about war power delegation. You know, if the president has a lot of independent unilateral power to use force, then it's not so clear whether a a force authorization, you know, what today we might call an AUMF, is really delegating much of anything. Maybe the president already has that power on, on, on his own. And we conclude the paper, though, by noting that, all right, if you want to reverse that, if you want to go back to a world in which the president doesn't have a lot of unilateral power to take the country to war, that Congress holds that power, well, then you're kind of peeling back this layer that's been laid over the delegation issue. We think once you go back to a world or you try to go back to a world in which Congress really is the key decision maker about whether or not the nation goes to war or not, you kind of have to confront the delegation question at that point. And I want to get into some of those implications. But before we do so, I want to discuss uh, one fascinating episode you mentioned in the paper that illuminates the shift you're referencing, uh, which is the Formosa AUMF. Could you describe the circumstances that led Congress to past that AUMF or AUMF style authorization and what it represented about post-World War II war power delegation? Yeah, so it's a super interesting episode. And one reason why it's super interesting, I'll get into this in a moment, is uh, it doesn't actually result in a, in a war, right? It's, I think it's a super important episode in the history of constitutional war powers, but it's one that's that lawyers tend to to skip over. Lawyers like to look at cases, right? They like to look at, you know, if you're studying war powers, let's let's look at the wars that happened. But here's an example of a war that seemed quite possible, 
but it never actually occurred. So uh, this is, we're, we're talking here about late 1954, early 1955, when communist China was shelling some tiny coastal islands that were under the control of uh, U.S. allied nationalist China, based in what we now call Taiwan, then Formosa. And the United States had at this point signed, but not yet ratified, a defense pact with nationalist China in in Formosa. And to help deter communist China and to reassure the nationalist Chinese leadership, in January 1955, Eisenhower goes to Congress and asks for what we today would call an an AUMF, uh, an authorization to use force. Uh, And he, he argues that the situation had become so dire that a congressional authorization would uh, uh, help deter attacks on Formosa. It was critical to, to U.S. national security. And days later, Congress obliged by nearly unanimous votes in, in both houses. And the, the, the resulting force resolution delegates vast, vast discretion to the president to use force. And, and, and we think this episode more than any, is a, a sort of a watershed moment. And it's significant for a few reasons. First is just the sheer breadth of this delegation of power, right? This force resolution authorizes in advance whatever force the president deemed necessary to protect a, a far-flung ally. It was understood at the time that this might include nuclear weapons, uh, especially under Eisenhower's massive retaliation doctrine. Multiple times in the resolution, it emphasizes the president's role as the sole judge of necessity, and its duration was open-ended, right? Congress only repeals this force authorization 20 years later. It's on the books for 20 years. So one reason why it's important is its sheer breadth. The other important aspect of it, though, is its purpose. This is something I, I just alluded to moments ago. You know, Usually presidents have requested force authorizations because the president either has already initiated force or the president plans to. The the president is almost certainly going to. But one thing that's interesting about the Eisenhower resolution, the Formosa resolution, is that it was never invoked. It was never activated, right? Eisenhower held the resolution in his pocket, but he didn't actually launch strikes. Uh, and, And that's because this resolution was more about signaling than about war fighting. Two years later, by the way, Congress passes again at, at, at Eisenhower's urging an even broader force resolution, uh, this time delegating power to use military force over the entire Middle East to deter communist aggression there. That one's still actually on the books. And then this pair of resolutions, Formosa and Middle East, becomes the model for the infamous uh, Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which delegates vast power to the president and is ultimately used to massively escalate the Vietnam War. Yeah, I was really struck by those Eisenhower administration AUMFs. I wasn't I wasn't aware of how broad they were. Okay, so that's the the Cold War history. And Matt, how about the post-Cold War era? What do we learn there? So the post-Cold War world inherits the the Cold War practice of congressional delegations. Right. You had uh, the two Eisenhower 
delegations, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Now it's pretty well established that this is a constitutionally permissive device. And so we start to see it used again in the post-Cold War era. We use as examples uh, that Congress enacts force authorizations against Iraq in 1991 and, and 2002, both delegating discretion uh, to the president to initiate war or not to, right? Uh, it doesn't direct the president to do so. It puts in the president's hands a decision whether, when, or, 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 or perhaps not to use any force at all. And actually, I, I found interesting a statement on the floor by, by then-Senator Joe Biden, who, who thought it was necessary, though, to address this non-delegation argument in the congressional debates about the 2002 Iraq AUMF. And he says, I'm, I'm quoting here, I'm confused by the argument that constitutionally we're unable to delegate that authority. Historically, the way in which the delegation of the authority under the constitutional separations of power doctrine functions is there have to be some parameters to the delegation. But as I read this grant of authority, it is not so broad as to make it unconstitutional for us under the war clause of the Constitution to delegate to the president the, the power to use force if certain conditions exist. Uh, he's basically thinking this is a serious enough argument that I'm going to address it on, on, on the floor. Uh, and then it, the 2001 AUMF, we also regard as a form of delegation too. I mean, you can accept that the president, I do, uh, accept that the president has quite a lot of unilateral power to repel the 9-11 attacks, but the 2001 AUMF goes well beyond repelling the Al-Qaeda attacks. It, it, it gives the president quite a lot of discretion to decide who else, uh, what other nations, groups, individuals to use uh, force against. And, and, and that's why more than 20 years later, uh, we see the president using that delegation to go after terrorist groups that didn't even exist in 2001. Yeah. Speaking of the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs, Mike, how should your findings and your argument lead scholars and policymakers to potentially rethink those AUMFs, both in terms of how they square with other authorizations and their meaning for current U.S. military uh, operations? Well, one thing I think that our discussion suggests, although, again, we're, we don't come to a lot of conclusions on this. It's more a question of what, what's suggested by it. But, but one thing I, I think it does suggest is that we ought to think carefully about the idea of very broad delegations of war power, both in terms of ones that are open-ended and and one ones that turn one in terms of ones that that carry quite a bit of risk of a very substantial conflict arising from them, and that we shouldn't take from or or we should we should hesitate to take from the Cold War authorizations that Matt was describing of a blank check uh, for Congress to hand over its war power to the president because uh, that doesn't have the long historical pedigree and it raises some substantial structural questions about what branch of government ought to be in charge uh, of significant war power decisions. So I think it, it gives us something to think about with respect to those 
those authorizations. And while we don't go so far as to say that would make them unconstitutional, I think it, it might lead both Congress to think about, is, is this the right way to be pursuing this? Or should Congress take a more close supervisory role? Uh, and also to the extent that any of this gets into court, perhaps courts should not read these uh, authorizations as broadly as sometimes presidents ask them to. Again, the 2001 authorization is, is an example of the president has quite been quite, presidents have been quite aggressive uh, about stretching that to apply to, to all uh, sorts of things that seem perhaps not within the original contemplation. And perhaps we should be cautious about both giving presidents open-ended authorizations like this, but also reading authorizations the president does get to have these very long-term open-ended effects. I'd add to that and, and, and put it a bit differently, but a similar point. You know, especially if the non-delegation doctrine kind of makes a comeback or, or some more teeth are, are, are put back into uh, the non-delegation doctrine, one question then arises, well, what, what about war power delegation? Is that, is that different? How do you justify war power delegation? I happen to think, you know, my personal view is that war power delegation can, can be, should be justified on a number of grounds. I think there are good functional or policy reasons for it. Why, you know, I think it's a, actually a pretty necessary foreign policy tool. Why it overcomes some overly cumbersome aspects of exclusive congressional control of whether or not we go to war. I think one can also justify it based perhaps on a, an argument that recent, let's say 20th century historical gloss gives some constitutional legitimacy to the practice of war power delegation. I don't think, however, there is very strong evidence to suggest an originalist justification for it. Uh, I don't think you can justify, or at least we didn't find a lot of evidence that would support an originalist argument in favor of very broad war power delegation. And that's that to, to me is interesting because a lot of a lot of the strongest advocates of sort of revitalizing the non-delegation doctrine tend to be themselves originalists. So I'll be interested to see, you know, how do they reconcile those two things? You know, it, how how would they if there is a, a sort of a comeback for the non-delegation doctrine or tightening of the non-delegation doctrine, but those same jurists want to preserve war power delegation, on, on what grounds are they going to do that? I have my own grounds, like I said, functional grounds or, or, or more recent historical gloss. I just don't think the originalist argument is very strong here. Yeah, if, if I could step in on that too, uh, uh, because I think that's a really excellent point, and and I, I want to to amplify it by by saying that I, I think what one way an originalist might justify war powers delegation is to say that just general there, there's not a strong constitutional originalist rule against general against delegation generally, and some people take that view, but to the extent that originalists and particularly originalists on the court want to say. There is a strong non-delegation rule that comes out of the Constitution, but we want to have a carve-out for war powers. 
That's what is going to be a tough argument. And that's what we're interested to see what they come up with, because we, we didn't we, we think the argument for an original argument for a particular war powers carve out is uh, a challenge. That that makes sense. And just just one final question, Matt, you, you talk about in the article how the courts may believe and based on precedent, it seems that courts might deem these questions non-justiciable. So how do you view your argument concretely figuring into uh, the actions of, of the executive branch and Congress? Or do you view it as these actors wanting to wanting to ensure that their actions are constitutional? And so uh, kind of taking up these constitutional principles themselves. How do you view the concrete implications of of your argument if people were to to take it seriously as I think as I think they should? Yeah, so you're right in referencing uh, our observation that war power questions, the issue of you know whether Congress's war power is exclusive, to what extent does the president have his own unilateral power to use force, these issues tend to be regarded as non-justiciable political questions, or or they're they're kicked out of court for for any number of kind of jurisdictional justiciability reasons before courts tend to to reach the merits. And I I, I don't I don't foresee any any change to that approach. So the, we're talking really here about arguments that would be used and deployed by the the political branches, by other political actors. And the one that interests me the most is how Congress wrestles with this issue. So let's say that especially in a world in which both the far right and the far left politically uh, are advocating something of a retrenchment of American overseas military commitments. They're arguing for a a stronger role of Congress in deciding whether or not the United States is going to use force, right? We see both members of the political right and the political left, even just this week, criticizing on constitutional grounds, uh, the president's use of force against uh, the Houthis in Yemen. So I think we're likely to see a lot of those kinds of arguments. And to me, one of the interesting things will be, all right, to what extent do th- those critics of presidential unilateralism also go a step further and say, not just war power is a an exclusive congressional power, but it's one that can't be delegated with very broad force authorizations, right? So imagine Congress debating a new 2024 AUMF that's worded very broadly, to what extent do members of Congress object uh, the text to the sweep of those force authorizations on the grounds that they go too far in delegating discretion to the president? And one of the lessons that I draw from the historical uh, record is that it's in moments when congressional opinion leans towards great hesitation in the use of military force that we see these kinds of non-delegation arguments kind of coming back into the fore, coming bec- becoming more popular and pronounced in congressional debates. 
you know, just as an example, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, very, very broad delegation. Uh, the non-delegation issue was barely mentioned, barely mentioned in debates about the, in 1964, about the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. But when the, when the war goes badly, when it becomes a quagmire, you know, five years later, then we start to see non-delegation arguments in congressional hearings among members of Congress calling into question the constitutionality sort of after the fact of the Gulf of Tonkin resolution saying, actually, this was, uh, this was uh, an unconstitutional delegation of war power uh, discretion to the president. Why did those arguments resurface? Because Congress's mood turns uh, very dramatically against the use of force. So my own speculation, my own prediction is that if that is where congressional opinion moves in 2024 and onwards, I expect to see this non-delegation argument kind of coming back into in, into wider circulation. Okay, we will have to leave it there. Mike, Matt, thank you for joining us on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachi Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.